0: morning everybody how's it going so a couple of things uh before we start yeah um so this is great like worship on sunday morning wonderful it's one of the like hallmarks of the of the church that we want to we want to do you know we want to be a worshiping church Um, but you know, we're also new hope community church, which means that we want to be living life together. We want to be doing life together. We want to be involved in each other's lives and we want to meet people and meet new people and welcome visitors. And so what we found is that one of the key like elements of getting people to start at worship, but then also kind of get into the life of the community is to have donuts and coffee with one another. That's really important. Is what we found in the life. Of, we've actually been doing that for 15 years. New Hope celebrates 15 years uh, this past uh, March. And we found is that's really a great way to um, just get to know people and meet new folks. But what we want to do is get people literally from this room into that fellowship hall, cafeteria, auditorium, cafe uh, fellatorium, whatever we can call it. But here's the thing. If you've noticed, the walk from this beautiful sanctuary down to the fellowship hall isn't all that lovely of a walk. It's like, you know, you're kind of walking through these like drab hallway and, you know, um, there's kind of like this this uh, drop ceiling there. And like I had a friend of mine come in uh, a couple of weeks ago and he's just like walks to the sanctuary like, wow, this is so great that you guys get to worship here. And I said, oh, yeah, let me show you the rest of the building. And he walks in the hallway, he's like, oh, well, this, this is different. So anyway, the reason I say that is because I think we'd like to um, maybe spruce up that hallway and spruce up um, the walk from the sanctuary where we do this worship to also where we do the fellowship, which is also there's like there's a little bit of liturgy in that. There's a little bit of, of church rhythm in the idea of, of going from worship and then living to life of community. So what we want that hallway to be is a, a, a colorful uh, example of the kind of things that we're involved in, in the community. So if that's you, if you are if you. Like watching like interior design shows, if you're interested in, in painting, if you're interested in colors, if you're interested in pictures, and like, oh, this wall could really use a thing, and that wall could really use a that thing, and stuff like that. I just don't have that kind of gifting. Um, so if, you, if that's you, I would just covet a conversation with you uh, over the next couple weeks. So I just wanted to say that. Anyway, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3. We'll get to Psalm 139 in a minute. We're going to have communion today, but I want us to think, like Mary said, a little bit about this idea of um, God's plan, not ours. Um, And when we think about the things about us that need to change, the things about us that need to be, uh, what we might say, put to rights, we do that up against in relation to God's righteousness, not ours. We do that in relation to who God sees us as, what God created us to be, not like the hopes and dreams and ambitions that we might personally have. Um, So anyway, there's a story, one of the oldest stories that we tell around here, of Moses and the burning bush. I still think uh, they put the Ten Commandments with uh, Charlton Heston on TV every year around Easter. And they load it up with commercials so it actually like, takes like a day and a half to get through the whole thing. Um, you know the story. Moses is a Hebrew who was raised in the house of Pharaoh. After killing an Egyptian who was giving one of his Hebrew kinsmen a hard time, he flees Egypt to the land of Midian where he marries, starts a family, and works as a shepherd for his father-in-law. One day, while out in the fields, he spots this flaming bush. And it's one thing to spot something on fire, but this bush, it, it didn't seem to be consumed One day, it might be fun to do a preaching series on elements of of nature and see how they actually appear in Scripture, earth, air, fire, water. Anyway, the bush doesn't seem to be burning up, and that's quite odd. So Moses figures he's going to check this thing out. As he approaches the bush, he hears a voice say the name, Moses, Moses. Evidently, the bush knew his name. Moses says, Here I am. And then the Lord God replied, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So God then tells Moses that he has observed the misery of his people. He's observed how the Egyptians have the Hebrews in bondage. He intends on fleeing them from bondage and leading them to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds sticky. Now, up until this point, presumably Moses liked what he heard. God plans to liberate the Hebrews hebrew people from the yoke of slavery apparently he is a loving god who even refers to the hebrews as my people have you ever heard a vision so powerful that it it stirred something inside of you maybe it's a new project that you get to dive into at work maybe it's something that would would uh, rally the church and and get folks excited about a new thing you hear some charismatic leader begin to cast a vision and people start to respond because you could just kind of feel the excitement in the air. And you might sit there, you might even stand up and you might say, wow, this is a good thing. I, I'm so glad that they are doing this. It's been a long time coming. I've been thinking they needed to update that hallway for a long time. Um, perhaps you're even hoping that you'll be a part of it and might cautiously ask how you could be involved. But, you know, you don't want to volunteer too much, because clearly there are people better than you at that particular thing, and you don't really have the time for it anyway. You're far too busy with other things. Besides, there are others better suited to such matters. But still, you're very excited about this new thing, and you hope the best for it. Maybe that's how Moses felt in that moment. See, here was a man who had a history back in Egypt. And it's funny what the, what the Bible only talks about for one paragraph in Exodus 2. Cecil B. DeMille turns into like two hours of backstory. So we gotta be careful about what we recall in the actual tale. Still, Moses had a history in Egypt that he wasn't exactly looking forward to drumming back up because he now had a wife. He had a son. He had a job. He was living his life. But of course, it is exciting to hear that God's going to do some liberating work among the Hebrews. That sounds great. But then God continues. So come, Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses is like, me? He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? Moses says, I'm, I'm just a shepherd. Sure, I'm familiar with e- Egypt and how their politics work. I, I know plenty of people back there. Um, but, but do you really think that it's a good idea to drum back up all the stuff that happened back then and back there? It's, it's in the past. And I, I think it's, it's good. And I think I've got a good thing going on here in Midian, right? I'm reminded of, uh, of Mr. Spock, who once quoted an old Vulcan proverb, only Nixon can go to China. You see, it was rather ham-handed, but Moses actually stumbled upon one of the two most important questions that a human being can ask. And he's about to stumble upon the second. The first question that Moses asks is, who am I? See, it's precisely because of Moses' history that he's such a likely candidate for the job. But you know what? That's not really what's important right now. The most important thing is how God responds to Moses' question. Moses asked, what business do I have walking into Egypt and making demands? God doesn't use this moment to affirm the redemptive qualities of Moses' story or to tell him he's a sharp guy and he doesn't give himself enough credit. This isn't an after-school special about people with low self-esteem. No, God's response to Moses is simply, I am with you. Moses might not have realized it at the time, but that was everything that he needed to hear. He needed to hear his God say, I'm with you. You get that? Like, yeah, it's a daunting task, but what I want you to do, it's a huge thing. But you know what? I'm with you. And then, maybe naturally, Moses then stumbles upon the second most important question a human being can ask. God, who are you? He says, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, Well, what's his name? You shall say, What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. He says further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, You want to know who I am sent me to you, the great I am. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, this God who's been with you the whole time, he sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my title for all generations. See, here we see God. Ascribing to himself the aseity, that's a fun word, the aseity of his holy character. The aseity, S-A-S-E-I-T-Y, of God is the self-existence of God. Everything else exists first because of his self-existence. You, me, the tree, the rock. All of it is under the scope of his sovereignty. As we've talked about before, we know that God is creative. He's creative not just in a perfect fashion. He's created in a dynamic fashion. He, the things he creates give way to other life. He doesn't just create a world that is finished and perfect. Instead in his holiness he creates a good world one with even the potential for imperfection but then declares sovereignty over all of it. Sure, Moses has some history in Egypt, but the truth is that the bondage of Hebrew slavery at the hands of the Egyptians is a massive problem with a complexity of complications that Moses had no way of anticipating. But God, God with a mighty hand will accomplish it through Moses because of God's holy character, not Moses's. See, if Moses is going to lead Israel out of Egypt, he cannot do so by his own power. He can't do it by his own cunning and his own sharpness. He must be trusting that God will be with him, even in the pain, even in the failures. To say that it's all part of God's plan might cheapen it because God's plan you want to know God's plan? God's plan was for them to listen and obey. God's plan for his people was for them to te- keep and till the garden in close inth- intimacy with their creator. With, it, with their creator, we continue to live out the consequences of humanity choosing to go against God's plan. As such, the reality of human sinfulness is a massive problem with a complexity of complications that we have no true way of anticipating. But God, with a mighty hand, will accomplish it through Jesus, not because we are so holy as to follow or believe, but because of Jesus' faithfulness to his Father's plan. In Christ we're given the freedom to follow, the freedom to listen and obey, the freedom to seek first the kingdom, the freedom to trust that God's redemptive powers are on the move even in our pain, even in our failures. The problems we face in our day and age are real problems. And in Christ, the church has been given the task of being a voice of God's redemptive sovereignty. It's our job to proclaim in word and in deed the gospel truth that God is putting the world back together. I have a selfish hope that that proclamation will look like a pastor delivering a sermon to a congregation. But I'll tell you this, my primary duty as a pastor, Paul tells us, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The task that I've been called to do is to proclaim the truth to you all that God is calling you to the work of his kingdom. You might think that you have no business doing that. You might think that uh, that's church work, right? I agree. It is church work. And you all are the church. This fall, we're going to work through a series on ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the, the study of the church. And I'm going to give it away. The first lesson that we're going to learn in our study of the church is that the church is not an institution. The church is definitely not a building The ecclesia of Jesus is a movement of men and women who gather for worship on Sundays and then take the message of liberation out into the world, into their jobs, into their schools, building it into their families, trusting not in their own power and cunning, but in God's sovereignty to take the gospel even to the darkest corners of the world. As we've been talking about this series, how we do that. It's to live in such a way as to inspire and influence those around us. us. Am I saying that we should be evangelizing our friends and our co-workers? Well, perhaps. We could talk more about that. But I could tell you this. There's this quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that we all probably know. It says that we should preach the gospel always. And when necessary, we should use words. So how are you going to proclaim the gospel? I think you're going to proclaim the gospel by doing a great job at your job, by being the best student that you can be, by being a parent who pours your life into your children. You're going to proclaim the gospel by being a business owner who treats your employees well, giving them reasonably generous salaries and benefits, treating them with dignity and respect at all times, even when they screw up. You're going to proclaim the gospel by being a faithful employee, one who does their work well and makes your boss wish that they had 10 more people just like you. You proclaim the gospel by being someone that others can go to, someone who cares about the world around you, someone who, in facing the darkest problems of our day like poverty and immigration and addiction, steers clear of phrases like, that's not my problem. Fred Rogers says this, he says, it's easy to say it's, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. But then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. And then you do that. You put in that kind of faithful work. And one day, one sweet day, someone looks you in the face and they say, man, why is it that you do what you do? And you get to respond having all of this credit. Saying, because that's how I respond to the kind of radical love that Jesus showed me. See, here's the truth that we've been trying to get across in this series. God wants us to do big things. But he desires us to trust that he is bigger than all of them. The answer to who am I is that I am a fallible creature prone to wander and leave the God I love. There are things about me that stand in opposition to God's holiness and I can trust no one but him to refine the darkest corners of my existence in a way that glorifies his name and builds for his kingdom. He has called me to be to big things. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, but if left to my own devices, if left to my own power and my own cunning, I fail. But following him, I know I've already succeeded. That's the truth of living in the power of the cross and the resurrection. So with that, now I have the boldness to approach a text like Psalm 139, And I do so on my knees with humility, knowing that the truth of my very existence is dependent upon my relation to Him who is the I Am. This psalm is pitched in the tone of His holy standard and my sinful reality in relation to it. O God, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Uh Uh-oh. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh, Lord, you know it completely. You know why I said that thing I said. You, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I can't attain it. See, here we see the omniscience of God. The attribute of the Almighty that views him as all seen. God searches us. He knows us. He discerns our thoughts from far away. He knows our path and knows when we rest. He's acquainted with all our ways. Even before a word leaves our mouth, he knows what it'll be, for he knows our heart. He knows it completely. The psalmist says that God's hand is before us and behind us. It's as if this knowledge is too much for the psalmist to bear. It's, it's, it's like it's too wonderful. It's like it's too good to be true. So high that I cannot attain it. But when we were never ever supposed to try. We were always supposed to trust and obey. At first, it might be a little jarring to think that God sees it all and he knows it all. Every little nook and cranny of us, he created us, he knows us. Every little poor choice he makes, every time we do something self-serving and mean, every time we choose fear over love, he knows it. John Calvin said that the human heart has so many recesses for vanity, so many lurking places for falsehood, is so shrouded by fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. We are drenched in sin and are in bondage to it. And yet, God, who sees us in our bondage, sees every little corner of our souls, even the things that we don't realize about ourselves enters into that reality and says, follow me, I know the way out. Where can I go from your spirit or or where can I flee from your presence, Psalm says. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the the place of the dead, you're there. If, If I take the wings of the morning and settle in the farthest limits of the sea and do all these great and glorious things, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You see, here we see the omnipresence of God. The truth that God is present at all times, everywhere. Now, it would be a mistake for us to think that that some of God is is present here, and another bit of God is present in Montana, and another bit of God is present on Jupiter. No, he, He is not just all present, He is all present in His fullness. It would be ridiculous to think that we can flee from God's presence. Still, every sin, ever since the sin of the garden, has mankind run from the presence of God, it is understandable that the whole unholy would shrink from the holy. But isn't it interesting that the psalmist says, you know, if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Sheol could, could be described as the place of the dead. The psalmist says that, that even if I was to make my bed, even if I was to, to set up camp in the place of the dead, God's still there. He's encouraging, though, Here is an encouraging thought for those who have concerns about the darkest corners of the world. It's an encouraging thought for those who have friends who have made wayward or destructive choices. Even in the pain, even in the failures, that's where God is. And we can trust that he will make himself known because even the, even the darkness is not dark to him. The night is as bright as day and when we are involved in great things, and when we do take the wings of the morning and settle on the farthest limits of the sea, we remember it's not because of our own power and cunning. It's not because we spread our wings and flew. It is because of God's leading hand. For it was he who formed my inward parts. The psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you before because I am fearfully, I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I, I know them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that formed for me. When, when none of them, even when none of them had existed. How weighty are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them, they're more than the sand. I come to the end, I, I am still with you. See, here we see the creative sovereignty of God. One writer says, God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but is operative there the author of every detail of my being. The psalmist says that God formed our inward parts. He knit us together in our mother's womb. My, my wife likes to knit. Many of you were probably received some of the things that she's knitted. Um, and while I freely admit that it is an incredible skill, I can also attest that I don't see her doing a whole lot of knitting removed from the context of, of love, I see in Amy that knitting takes skill, but it also takes emotion. It, it takes her pouring a little bit of herself into this thing that she's created. So, so as a mother, as a mother knits a blanket for a child, or a friend knits gloves for another friend, there's an intimacy there that, that, that's necessary. That's necessary for the beauty. That's the sort of intimacy that God takes when God forms our our inmost character, our infos, our our, our body. God created us to be, He created us to be creatures who reflect His love back into a world desperate for light. The psalmist says In your book were written all the days that formed for me when none of them had yet existed. The story of creation is an autobiography. But it is a grand story. It's a grand story with an infinite number of characters. Still, God knew from the beginning of time that we would be gathering here today together for worship. He has created this thing called New Hope Community Church as a living, breathing collection of Jesus followers with lots of different various skills and talents and passions and vices. He knows that we will hurt one another. He knows that we will lift each other up. He created us to live into the reality of his sovereignty and trust that even in the pain, even in the failures, he's there. For this God we describe is real, and so is sin. There is the sin of others, and there is our own sin. And the psalmist has something to say about both of the categories. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O oh God. Oh, that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. You ever meet anybody that was bloodthirsty? Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. But search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Test me and, and, and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way of life everlasting because I could easily be those wicked people. In fact, I know I am. At first, it would appear that the psalm is, is writing about those wicked people over there. Surely, we should stand in opposition to anything and anyone who would stand in, against God, right? We don't want anything to do with those wicked people over there. We want nothing to do with those who hate God. But the truth is, there are times when each of us hate God. There are times when each of us choose what is easy, what is safe, what is pleasurable, in order to appease our own flesh. We fall for this lie that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and hope that just nobody's going to get hurt. But the truth is that our sin, even our personal sins that we think are hidden from nobody, have a nasty way of turning up and hurting the people we love. So the psalmist says, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked, wicked way in me, and then lead me, lead me in the way of life everlasting. The picture here is someone who comes to the Lord with open arms. Search me, O God. I know there's cruelty in the world. I know there's hatred. Search me. Call out anything in me that's against your will. Call out anything that stands in opposition to your holy character. If there be any corruption in me, name it, God. God, I don't want to follow anybody but you. The thing is that God does search us. He knows us intimately because he formed our inmost parts, because he is a loving God who wants nothing less than abundant life for his creation. And because of that, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and mine. In Christ, sin and death they're completely restored and they're destroyed and the gift of salvation is offered to us free of charge because of his love for us, not because of our power and cunning. All we need to do is let go of these things that put us on the sovereign throne. These lies that say that we're really all seen, we're really all powerful. We need to give up the thought that it's by our own power, our own cunning, our own ambition that we deserve such big things. And instead, we are called to trust that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is our saviour. We're going to close our time with communion, the mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Our communion table at New Hope, it's an open table to all that call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want to say something. If you're not there this morning, if you haven't yet made a decision to follow Christ, you need to know that we love you. We, you need to know that you're welcome here and that we hope that you think of new hope as a place where you can come not having to hide your doubts or your questions. And when we take communion, you, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. Feel free to just have a few moments in your seat. And I will add this though, that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted and the other is baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith. So, if you decide to come forward for communion and you have yet to be baptized, that's okay. But I'll ask you to consider coming to me later to discuss the possibility of making that public declaration of your faith. The bread is unleavened and there is gluten-free crackers. The red is wine and the white is grape juice. After coming forward, I'll ask you to take the elements back to your seats where we'll all take them together. First, though, would everyone please stand and read as churches have done throughout the, throughout the centuries in the reading of the Nicene Creed.